Welcome to In Search Of. We're your hosts, Ashton and Sam. We're two accountants who binge podcasts by day and TV by night. Keep listening to find what you've been in search of. Hey, Sam. Hey, Ashton. Okay, so we have, I don't even know what we're calling this, police corruption, I think, is what we've got. So we've got, um, I'm just going to get straight to it because we <laughs> we are struggling on the other it's side. It's been a journey getting here to start <laughs> yeah. recording. Um, okay, so we have Mine Hunters as our TV show. I'm doing a podcast called Friendly Fire by Campsign Media, and then you are doing... Uh, what happened to Sandy Beal from iHeartRadio? This is like out of left field. I chose this yesterday. Did you, to listen did to you the whole thing yesterday? <laughs> okay. I was and like, then, wait, that made, is not what I remember me picking. Notes. Yep. No, I couldn't okay. get through the other one in time. Okay. Okay. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. I look forward to hearing it. Okay. So our TV show we picked was Mine Hunters, which has two seasons out. I think that's it. I don't think they're doing any more. It was. I really liked Mine Hunters. Um, so the first season is I and I looked this up on um, Wikipedia just because I wanted to get the like period of time correct. So the first season takes place from 1977 to 1980, and so basically the first season is all about them like establishing the um, what's it called? Uh, what is the whole thing that they criminal profiling? So like Mm -hmm. how to identify serial killers, you know, Mm -hmm. like they have things about them, things that they repeat. Um, So this was like brand new back in this period of time. But anyways, so they go through that period, like this set period of time and they go through these serial killers. And like one of the main ones is Edmund Kemper. Um, Mm -hmm. Like he's one of the serial killers. There's a couple others. I think they do BTK towards the end. Um, but they also show like their personal life too. So it's, um, and I really like the actors. It's kind of funny. The guy who plays Holden Ford, I believe is his name. He was in um, Let It Snow. What's that movie? Uh, Frozen. Frozen. He like, that's oh. <laughs> all <laughs> I was like, Let It Snow. Frozen. He like sings and stuff. Like he is an actor, oh. like a voice on that. Yeah. Actually, I think I might have known that because I mean, it's been a while since I've watched it, but I uh-huh. think. When I was watching it, I was uh-huh. like, do I know this guy? Like, have I seen him in uh-huh. anything? And I looked him up and I think I saw that. Yeah. So um, so anyways, the first season is kind of about how they establish the criminal profiling. And then they go through a couple of different serial killers. Um, and then the second season is about the Atlanta murders uh, and the real case of like Wayne Williams. Um, and it's just, I think they just do a good job of like incorporating the actors and like their personal lives and then also highlighting uh, real life things, like Did real life stories. Did you listen to the podcast Atlanta Monster? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because like that was the second season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but like, you know, it wasn't the podcast turned into a show, but it was like a different perspective on yeah. the same kind of case. And so mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting to kind of see that all played out on a show. Yeah. So um, I really 
liked it. Um, it's a good show. Two seasons. I think it's easy to watch. It's like not that um, scary. You know, I mean, some of the serial killers are kind of scary, but like it's not um, like super gory or anything like that. So, yeah. And it's like as much about the him and like his colleagues as it is about like the serial killers yeah 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 so that's a good show we would recommend um and there's not really any like police corruption but it does focus on like detectives and stuff so that's Mm kind of why we went that direction but moving on to our podcast i'll go first because i think the last time i recorded you went first sam um so my case or my podcast um i said it earlier but it's called friendly fire by campside media and this takes place in scott county which is like north of knoxville so pretty close to nashville um this podcast i like binged like so fast it was so good and just so interesting i think just because it's close to us um so this uh scott county is in east tennessee um this crime took place in 2003 and scott county um at the time i'm not sure what it's like today but it's just it was a very poor area and there was lots of drugs and um like a meth was a big problem for that area so this story is about two police officers um Ca- marty carson who was the drug officer for scott county's sheriff sheriff deposit sheriff department and then um john yancey and everyone calls him like john john and he was like the canine officer so on november 28th 2003 john john and marty had gotten a tip that someone was cooking meth in a mobile home and supposedly this guy was on fbi's top 10 most wanted list and there was two other officers that went with them to this mobile home John John was out front speaking with the man who lived there and Marty like went to the back door and a woman lets him in and her name is Nikki Porter, I believe. And, um, some, uh, some point I'll get back, I'll get into the details later, but I'm just giving you like the high level what happened, but John John eventually goes around to the back and enters through that same back door. The next thing everybody hears is this large, like loud, loud bang. Marty comes running out saying a soft officer's down and they call the cops. John John had been shot and um, he, he was shot in the shoulder and he is eventually rushed to the hot rush to the hospital and they do everything they can, but he eventually um, dies. So after John John was shot, a huge manhunt has taken over the County. Um, they are looking for a man with a shotgun who is suspected of killing John, John John. Um, but this the shotgun story is like a big thing that doesn't make sense because um if he had been shot with a shotgun like where in his shoulder where he was hit like his arm probably would have fallen off because of like the way um the shotgun hits you um like it would have left a massive hole and he just had like instead like the doctors were like he just has a small hole Um, and the bullet is made of a single piece of lead instead of like a cartridge full of pellets. So Lori is, um, John John's wife and she sees Marty at the hospital and he's getting his blood, blood drawn, which is like a mandatory thing that happens like in this kind of scenario when a cop gets shot. Um, 
they have to check and make sure he doesn't have any drug or alcohol in his system. And it comes back negative. And she asked Marty what happened. And he says a guy named Mark knew that they had been looking for on the FBI's top 10 most wanted had shot John and fled the scene. Lori had never heard this name before. There was a guy named Mark in the mobile home cooking meth that night, but it was not the same guy. So Mark knew lived on the same street on the mobile home where everything like happened. He said he could hear all the sirens and commotion commotions happening down the street. His brother who lives in Kentucky had a scanner and had heard his brother had shot a cop and fled the house um, and like fled to his brother's house. And so his brother calls Mark and he's like, what is going on? Like, I just heard this on the police scanner. And Mark's like, no, I'm sitting in my house. And Mark said a ton of people start calling him confused, like as to what's going on. And so him and his wife just to stay, just decide to stay put. But like the strange thing is like no police officers ever like come to his house, which is I like, know, that, that was so weird. Yeah. So the next day officers show up to Lori's house and tell her that they'd gotten a report back from the crime scene. And it was actually Marty's gun that had shot John. She like immediately thinks that's an accident. She's like, okay, a struggle broke out. It was just a horrible accident. And um, they say the sheriff was too upset to come tell her the news. And the sheriff is actually Marty Carson's dad, Jim Carson. So kind of weird. So a press conference is held and they report that the shooting was accidental. And after Lori hears the press conference, she's just like, okay, things are not adding up. Mark knew was never at the scene. There was no one there with a shotgun and they closed the case in five days and say there's like no wrongdoing. So a couple days later after the conference, um, a sheriff comes back out and tells her what happened. And apparently Marty told John not to come into the trailer. And she was like saying that he made it seem like John, because he did go in, it was his fault. And so that just kind of bothered her. And um, however, like none of that was mentioned in the press conference and also that wasn't mentioned like it, like during the investigation right after the shooting. He didn't say that either. So like you would think that would be such an important detail that he would mention that. Um, so Marty Carson had two interviews, one right after the shooting and one a couple years later. He died in 2021 from natural causes. So the podcast could really only take what was said from these interviews. So this is his story. Thanksgiving night, the night before the shooting, they received a tip that there was a guy trying to that there was a guy that they were trying to track down from the FBI list um, who was who had a meth lab on Williams Creek Road, which is like where the mobile home was. And there was a confusion on like whose informant it was, like whether it was John or Mark's like they could never get like a I mean, John couldn't say like he could never defend himself. And Marty said it was his and they and Lori was like, I'd never heard of that. So um, they don't really know whose it was, but they only knew that the guy's first name was Mark. So Thanksgiving night, they uh, staked out like that road to see if a yellow truck would drive by, which is like what they were told Mark was driving. They never saw the truck. Lori remembers John doing that like that Thanksgiving night, the next night, Marty and John meet up with two other police officers to make a plan. One of the officers looked up um, all the men in their County named Mark who had been arrested and Mark knew who lived on that same street of the meth lab was ruled out before the event even occurred. So like, 
you know, why were all the cops looking for him then? Mm-hmm. Um, Marty said he didn't want to go into the mobile ho- or like go to the mobile home that night, but John pushed for it saying they could use the overtime pay. Again, we don't know what John John's side is. Um, so they arrive at the mobile home. John John is talking to a man at the front door of the mobile home and Marty goes around to the back door where he's talking to Nikki. He sees uh, shadows behind the behind a door down the hallway and he's hollering at the door for them to come out. He says he hears a woman screaming behind the door saying he's got a gun and then he says he thinks he hears a shotgun being loaded. He uh, says that he yells at the officers outside not to come in. He's got a gun. The door opens slightly and he says he sees a shadow, what he thinks to be a human holding a weapon. So he ducks into the bathroom on his left and he says he thinks he sees the barrel of a shotgun coming into the bathroom. He then fires his gun and a couple seconds later, he hears John yelling, I've been shot. And like a big thing for this case is he shot the gun in the wrong direction of like where the people were in the room. So, um, and then like basically during the interview with the TBI, they were like, okay, help us make sense of this. Like, how can we explain this detail? Which was like very weird. Cause they're like basically saying, Hey, this doesn't sound right, but we're trying, we're going to try to help you make it sound right. Which, right. you know, just weird. So Marty says he comes out of the bathroom, sees John, he puts his gun in his holster and tries to drag drag him out of the mobile home. And he thinks he's already dead, which this was another big issue was like, if you thought there were people, if you thought someone had truly just shot a cop and they were in that room and you put your gun up, like you clearly were not that threatened. Um, right. You know, like it didn't make sense. So, um, he says he was too heavy so he runs outside tells one of the officers to call an ambulance marty says he heard nikki yelling but he didn't know what she was saying because the people in that room after the cop got shot and marty left they ran and escaped and nikki the one who answered the door like stayed with john john and stayed by him side like by his side in the mobile home um and she was yelling saying like hey he needs help like he's still alive but marty says he didn't hear that So Marty and the other officers also like didn't see the people hiding in the back bedroom escape out the back, which again, if these were the possible cop killers, like why would you just be hanging out front and not go? Yeah. Like you've, you are the worst cop in the history of the world. Yeah. I think people are shooting Mm -hmm. and you put your gun up and then you leave. Yeah. And like another thing too, was like, he didn't remember telling Lori about Mark new at the hospital. Cause they're like, okay, how did Mark come into this whole picture? Um, so that's Marty, Marty's side. That They also get Nikki's side. And Nikki, so she was the woman who opened the door. Um, and she's like one of the only witnesses who saw everything that happened that night. So this is her side of the story. She says, Nick, uh, Marty hollers out the back door and says, boys, he's in here. Come, come in here. And then John John comes inside. She says she never saw Marty take cover in the bathroom. And that the back bedroom door never opened. Marty was standing in the hallway facing the bedroom door and John John was right behind him. She says the next thing she hears is a bunch of footsteps like a scuffle because she was told to like step into the kitchen. So she like saw some things and then kind of stepped back and then heard some things. So she thought they were dragging somebody out of the bedroom. But again, the door was never opened. And then the next thing she hears is a loud bang. She came around the corner and Marty was facing John John and he was asking if he was okay. John John slid down to the ground. 
Marty told Nikki to yell for one of the officers. At this point, Marty puts his gun away again, and his back is toward the door where he thought someone had a shotgun, like question mark, you know, like still it's a big question mark. So Nikki knelt down to John John and was screaming for help. She said it felt like forever before anyone came. She said, finally, the ambulance came um, and got John John, but he was dead at this, like already dead at this point. Um, they took Nikki into custody, but she had to use the restroom before they like took her away from the mobile home. And so they let her go in the trailer. And when she was in there, she noticed a gun propped up behind the toilet. Like someone had placed it there and come to find out it was John John. So like, it didn't look like it fell. It was literally like standing yeah, up. And yeah. John John wouldn't have done that. No, no. So another like very weird thing. So clearly after like hearing both sides, there's quite a few differences between the two stories. They did. Um, the podcast host did try to talk to the other two officers there that night. One was hard of hearing and didn't hear the gunshot and he couldn't really speak on many of the details. The other story or the other officer's story matched Marty's and he said he heard Marty yelling something from the trailer but didn't know what he said. So like basically the guy who could have been the tiebreaker like couldn't break the tie. Um, and so Lori like truly truly believes this is an accident or this isn't an accident. So she she can't file a criminal case. She can file a civil murder case. Um, and this is different than a criminal case. So in a criminal case, you're innocent till proven guilty in a uh, civil case you have to like state your theory and you have to prove like more likely than not so you have to be closer to true than not um and so with a civil case they're they hope to get like they hope to win the civil case and then the next thing would be to bring it to a criminal case so in a civil case you only owe like damages where in a criminal case you would be like prosecuted and like you know, put to jail, whatever. Um, and obviously like police are really hard to sue. So this was going to be a tough case. Um, and before the case can be filed, they have to bring it in front of a judge and they will decide. Um, and so in order to do this, they needed a motive. So they at first weren't really sure like what the motive was. Um, she knew John John wasn't happy with the way things were ran within the police department. He was planning to run for sheriff against Marty's dad. But he hadn't announced he would run. And this was like two years down the road. Um, and, you know, like he could have been a threat to the Carson's family's like reign over police or over the power in the police department. But again, like, was that enough motive? Like he might have not even won. Um, and eventually, like the two years down the road, Jim, Jimmy Carson or Jim Carson, whatever, he did lose. So like he which it didn't look good because his son had killed a cop. <laughs> um but at the time, like, they couldn't really think of another no, no motive. So Lori was a nurse, and she was working in the ER one night, and a patient named Rick Babb told her he was an outlaw, and he had dealt with drug problems himself. And he says, um, you've got this all wrong, your like, on why your husband was shot. And he was like, it was not because he was running for sheriff. And so she's like, okay, what the heck? Um, and he told Lori, him and another person his nephew met Marty Carson in a cemetery one night and he offered Rick money and a handgun to kill John. He said John was killed because of drugs. Rick had been a CI, which is a confidential informant for Marty for six years. 
So he would like tell him who was cooking and who was selling meth. He was a delivery boy. He would bring him drugs. So like he would have the evidence. Uh, Marty would have the evidence to like arrest people. But after a while, like Marty wasn't arresting anyone for these drugs. Um, and like wasn't even filing a report. And he would just keep the drugs. And if he did make an arrest, he would only turn in a little bit. So like some very shady stuff. So according to Rick, Marty was deep into meth. He used it. He would snort coke with Marty. Um, Marty had people cooking for him and even helped two guys break out of county jail to go make more meth for him. And this is all like according to Rick. Mm. He found out about the, he found, if he found out about a meth lab, Marty would have it shut down. Um, he said in the fall of 2003, he bought a bag of meth for evidence, like at Marty's direction. And John John was the one who came and picked it up this time. So this was like right before John John was killed. Um, Rick, assuming John was just like Marty, like with drugs and stuff, he goes, you boys have fun with that. John asked Rick what he was talking about. And Rick told him everything. John John said he was already on to Marty and had been for a while. He was investigating his own partner. Um, Rick then told Marty what happened and that he had screwed up. And that's when Marty tried to give Rick and his nephew the gun and the money to kill John John. Um, and this happened three weeks before John John was killed. And Rick was like, no, I'm not like, I'm a bad guy, but I'm not going to kill a cop. And so after Rick did the interview with the police, he was attacked by two men, stabbed in the chest and told if he kept talking, they would kill him and his family. And no one ever was arrested for this. So they don't know if like Marty and his family were up to it. But that is like another thing that happened. So the case is finally taken to court in 2007, so, like, four years later. Um, there were a few, like, problems, so, like, a lot of issues with, like, how credible were these, like, meth users as their witnesses because they did a lot of drugs, you know, like, how good was their memory? Mm -hmm. And then another thing that they can never really clear up was, like, how involved Marty was with, like, the drugs and, like, was he dealing or was he just using? Like, that was never completely clear. The jury had to answer the question of, did Marty Carson shoot John John on purpose or not? And there wasn't a lot of physical evidence, so they just had to use the testimonies. And they found Marty liable versus guilty, since this was a, a, a civil case. So the jury decided that Marty should have known John John was behind him. And another issue for the jury was there was no evidence of a shotgun being there. And basically, they believed Nikki's story over Marty's. Um, Lori won five billion in I mean not billion five million in damn <laughs> nice. I mean not nice because of how she got it, but yeah, yeah. So dollars. she got five million in damages. Um, which I don't know if that was actually ever paid out. I don't. I don't think it was, but um, it wasn't taken to criminal court because they believed there wasn't proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's like where it ended. Um, and yeah, so that was that's the. It's crazy. I know. It's a crazy. I was like mind blown listening to and it. And like, I mean, I, I guess it's a probably a small town and like small mm -hmm. hospital where Lori worked, but kind of like what a coincidence that like the person she was working on that was, night. Yeah, yeah. Happens to know like everything. I know. I know. Um, the podcast did a good job and they go into a lot more detail. So like, yeah. definitely give it a listen because there's a lot of stuff I didn't cover I just kind of hit the highlights but mm -hmm. um 
Yeah, it was a really, really interesting story. Um, I think they did a good job of explaining it, but yeah, it was crazy and really sad. Because the guy sounded, John John sounded like a good guy. Mm -hmm. He like, he, I mean, no one deserves that, but like he, he sounded like a good cop. Like uh, even the people who arrested him, like still liked him. Like they Mm -hmm. respected him. Yeah. Um, So he sounded like a good guy, but anyways. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I need to, I don't know if I listened to like the final episode or two of that. So Mm -hmm. I need to, if I haven't, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it was good. And now a word from our sponsors. My podcast is what happened to Sandy Beale by iHeartRadio came out in spring of this year. Um, It takes place in 1977. Sandy was 18 years old and lived in Maryland with her family. Her mom was Joanne. Her dad was Ronald. And she had three brothers, Stephen, Michael, and Ronnie. And she was the oldest of the kids and the only girl. So they said she was like queen bee and like didn't take crap from her brothers. Um, So on February 11th of 1977, Joanne Beale was at her home and Ronnie was homesick from school. And a detective knocked on her door and said that he had some news that the boy, so Ronnie, shouldn't hear. So he said to send the boy to her neighbor's house. And what he told her was that at 9 a.m. that morning, Frank Middleton, who was a detective, arrived at a secluded pole yard. And a pole yard is like where energy companies like store the poles that support like the power lines. Um, I didn't know that they had like a place where they like collected them, but they do. Yeah, I didn't either. Yeah. So it was a secluded area that was about 20 minutes from the Beale home. And he noticed a car parked there. And so like at 9 a.m. in the morning, he thought that like maybe someone um, was asleep inside the truck and like surrounding the truck, there were like tire tracks in the mud. And he noticed that underneath the wheels of the car, there were like pieces of cardboard. So it looked like someone had like gotten stuck and was like trying to make their way out and couldn't. And so he thought whoever was in the car just slept there and was going to try the morning to get out. So he walked up to the car and inside he saw Sandy dead and she had been shot in the abdomen. Um, there was some gunpowder in the car and kind of some other things like strewn about. Um, and he called three other policemen to the scene and these three men knew it was Sandy, but they never called Joanne to identify her. So Joanne didn't know that Sandy had died until three hours later when the detective showed up. So like they knew who she was, they like identified her called her death and like didn't bother to notify her parents that's horrible um, yeah I mean it was it was like the same day but like they they should have been the first one she called to like come and identify her and all that and, and so when was this again in the seven 1977 okay yeah. so yeah so, things were probably different too yeah but like so this podcast um The host, um, her name is Melissa Jeltson, and she, like, interviews Joanne. She's still alive. I think she's 82 today. Um, And so Joanne is kind of telling this this beginning part of the story. And Joanne was like, I couldn't believe that, like, they didn't have the decency to, like, call me. Like, that was the least they could have done because these police police officers knew um, who she was. And they – there where they lived was like 
in Maryland was not like the nicest part um, of town. And like her dad worked two jobs, but I think it was like a pretty small town. And so, you know, common decency. But anyway, so Joanne, off the bat, she's like not pleased with the police. So the police immediately ruled it a suicide, but no one in Sandy's family believed it. Um, Sandy was really close with her brothers. They say she was smart and outgoing, but she did have a bit of a tougher side um, because of kind of where she lived and like putting up with her siblings um, and all that. Um, And they said Sandy was popular. She did not appear depressed and she had plans for her future. Her family was in contact with her daily and thought suicide was just really out of character. Um, So some of the things that kind of support their theory, um, Sandy was shot in the right side of her abdomen, but she was left-handed. So like, it didn't really seem possible or likely that she would like take her left hand and like reach across her body to like shoot herself in the stomach. Um, And the gun that, so the gun was found in the car with her and it was her dad's gun. And so her brothers had all shot this gun before. And they said it was like way too heavy for her to be able to like pull the trigger with one hand. And so it just like, it it just didn't make sense. They were just trying to like explore the suicide thing a little bit, but like none of it made sense right yes okay yeah did i say that this explains suicide I'm, i think i meant you got, the other way I, around no i think i think you probably said it right i i was just thinking how like every time people like anyone tries to use that excuse it's never the right like hand is never the on the right side you know what right I mean? like it yes. never i feel like i've never heard a case well maybe i would never hear where it wasn't because you would assume it was a suicide but yeah, yeah i just always feel like it is always the opposite like yeah. And works out. so I meant to say this is what the family was arguing. So it wasn't a suicide. Okay, I might okay. have said it backwards. But anyway, and also like, they're like, that's a weird place to shoot yourself. Like if you really want to like end it, because there's possibility that you would survive that. Like, I think someone in the podcast said, it's like setting yourself on fire and like walking around instead of, I, I don't know, something weird. But anyway, no, um, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, you would probably like bleed out and not die mm-hmm. instantly. Yeah, I mean, it would be slow and painful, and yes. yeah, just yeah. So, um, another thing was Sandy was dressed up like nicely when she was found, um, and like her nails had been done, and not that she was like didn't usually like look nice, but like she was clearly dressed up. And so her family thinks that the night before, so on February 10th, she was going to meet someone and whoever that person was, they were in her passenger side seat and like shot her from that angle. Cause that like makes the most sense from kind of the evidence in her body. And they think that the cardboard underneath her wheels was proof that Sandy was trying to leave and get out and like go on her way and like, why would you go to that effort to get your truck out if you were not planning on leaving? So um, that's kind of what her whole family thought at the beginning. And Sandy's cousin, Kim Palmer, kind of became the family's detective on Sandy's case. And she's the one who approached um, Melissa Jeltsin with this case. 
Um, and Sandy and Kim had a pretty good bond going back from when they were younger. Um, Sandy kind of protected Kim from being like sexually harassed when they were at school. Um, and so like ever since then, they've always been pretty close. So going through um, the evidence from Sandy's truck, um, the key piece that they found was a letter to a man named Doug. And reading through this letter, um, they realized that he was a state trooper in the police department. And he and Sandy had a relationship despite him being 10 years older than her and married. So she was 18, he was 28 and married and was a police officer. Um, the other thing that was suspicious was the pole yard where Sandy was found was only a mile from where Doug worked. And it was a well-known place for police officers to gather and have privacy. Like they said, I don't really know like what they did there. If they just talked and like hung out. Um, but like the location, like why was her truck there? Why? Hold on quick intermission uh sam's dog is in her lap so if you hear like what sounds like someone's stomach growling it's sam's puppy grumbling <laughs> this oh she she's she really married. cute she, <laughs> she, here's us talking about her okay <laughs> anyways back anyway. to the story she's gonna be our um mascot for the podcast we'll share yeah. pictures of her. <laughs> um okay so Anyway, very suspicious of where she was. This letter to Doug was like, why was she carrying it with her? Despite all this, um, Doug was never interviewed after Sandy's death. And so, first of all, we all know that, like, <laughs> significant others are, like, the first kind of suspects. And, like, yeah, they go definitely. to them right away. And so that's one reason why he should have been interviewed. And second, like his name and his address and his phone number and everything was like in her car. And so oh. he like, he obviously had a connection with her was probably the last person to see her yet. He wasn't interviewed. Yeah. And it's like, because, you, should, you should just go down the list and then yeah. he should have been. Yeah. Because he was a state trooper. Yeah. So exactly. yeah. Um, other pieces of, this is not, I guess this is evidence, but it doesn't come from the crime scene. But Kim gave Melissa um, this date book that Sandy was keeping. And like Sandy like took really like detailed notes and kept um, a date book that had like all the information on the last two years of her life. She described meeting Doug and other aspects of her life in pretty great detail. But at the end of 1967, the tone of her writing changed and she made really short notes that said things like went to the doctor and set aside money. And in January, um, numbers started appearing on her days. Like she would write 60 days, 80 days. And then she drew a square around January 13th and wrote 8 a.m. And Melissa had also had a receipt from a medical center for January 13th at 8 a.m. for an abortion. So the whole story was that she had, she'd gotten pregnant by Doug um, and had an abortion and she was like keeping all of this secret. So, oh, so the she next had week, a doctor. So they found out she had a doctor's appointment for an abortion at 8am that day. 
Yes. So the 60 days and 80 days, she was counting. Got it. How many days she had been pregnant. Got it. And so um, the next week in her little notebook, she wrote, forget it in all capital letters. And then one month later, she was dead. Whoa. Yeah. So Joanne didn't know this. She didn't know about the pregnancy and abortion until after Sandy had died. So Sandy's relationship was a secret. And then her pregnancy was a secret and her abortion was a secret. So when they recovered her body, like, were they able to tell she was pregnant? No. So she had had the abortion. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. And then a month later she died. Got it. Got it. So, um, Kim, thinks that Sandy might've brought a gun with her to meet Doug the night of February 10th and like tried to scare him. Um, but it like went wrong and backfired and he grabbed it and shot her. Um, but so Melissa reads like the whole letter to Doug that was found in her car. Um, and it's not super long, but like some of the kind of the main points that people kind of focus on is she says, Quote, I guess I'm going crazy and no one can see it. I wish I could start all over again. I never want another man to want me. I just want to leave and forget the pain. So police say, well, that's a suicide note. Like she says, she wants to leave. Um, But Kim thinks she meant that she wanted to go to Maine where her grandmother lived. She had called her grandmother to see if she could live with her. Um, And Kim thinks like she was just a heartbroken teen. Like she had been in love with this married man and like gotten pregnant and she's just like has heartache and she's a teenager and just writing these kinds of things. Um, so again, they still think that's not a suicide note. It's evidence that like Doug was a bad guy. Um, and Kim thinks that if this letter had not been found, Sandy's death would have been investigated as a murder. Um, she still doesn't know if like Doug would have gotten away with it because He has like the authority and the power as a police officer to kind of cover things up. But she thinks like, you know, this note really helped their case. So Kim tried to get the police report. Um, The detective she spoke to said that their building burned down. And so they didn't have any or any of the um, police records. So all Kim got were autopsy results, which which showed Sandy had sperm in her. So like she obviously met someone, presumably Doug, that night. Then just a few years ago, um, Kim's niece's boyfriend who worked at the police department said that the building didn't burn down. He said, I worked there and it's been standing for 75 years. So she called back and got detective Bernie Nelson. He found the police report. It had been saved at Ed Shishelsky's home. And Ed was the cop who originally investigated uh, the case. Bernie went and got it and gave it to Kim. The report was 17 pages long and included details. Like there were empty Uh, There was an empty pill bottle in her seat and pills were scattered across um, the car. But Kim said it was allergy medication and Sandy had no alcohol or drugs in her system when she was autopsied. So like, again, it's just, they're kind of staging it to look like something that it wasn't. Um, There were no prints on the gun. There's no mention of Doug in the police report, despite his name, photo and address being in her car with her note. Um, So Melissa talks to Ed um, and she's like bringing up 
kind of like, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And um, she says, what do you think about the cardboard being under the tires? And he's like, there wasn't cardboard under the tires. I think you're mistaken. And she's like, I have pictures. And so she shows him pictures and goes, oh yeah, I guess I forgot about that. Um, But he says from the note, he could quote, see that she had nothing to live for. I know it was a suicide. It's like, okay, like rude. Um, And he said he never looked into Doug as a suspect. And the host is like, okay, I see that she has a lot to live for. Like, I don't know why you would say that, but you know, he just wants to sweep it under the rug and move on. So some of the things that she had to live for is she really wanted to be a cop herself. She called herself a cop freak. Um, Around her senior year of high school, she got serious about becoming a cop and began going on ride-alongs as part of a police explorer program that let young people train with police officers. So at this time in like the 70s, the police explorer program was like very new and was not well organized. And so like police would just be matched with like random people from the age of like 14 to 20 and they would like take them around and do stuff and like police are not like the most um uh like proper I guess I want to (laughs) say like they were probably showing kids things that they shouldn't see at like 14 yes yeah um and so Sandy wrote that the cops got away with a lot of shit but didn't really say what that was um and so the podcast kind of goes into sort of like statistics and like stories of what kind of happened in police departments at that time. And like women made up like 2% of police. And like, if they were in a department, they were often like sexually harassed and like they were the minority and um, cops, especially in this, county were known to use like excessive force on like people like victims and suspects and stuff so like just not not a good look in general um so sandy also had an address book with police officers names and addresses in them and all of their police car numbers which is like a lot of information to have like even if you're interested in that like that's very detailed information and like personal information too Um, and Melissa tried to call as many of them as she could and none of them remember her, but Ed said, so again, the cop, um, that originally investigated, he said he got 10 calls from the police in his department after her death to make sure that they hadn't been linked to her. Um, Ed said that the culture of the officers having inappropriate relationships with Sandy and other young girls caused what he called a big stink. So, he thinks that Sandy had like sexual relationships with like up to 10 police officers in this department. And Melissa is like, I mean, it's, I guess possible that she wanted that, but I believe that it's more, they were like exerting their authority over her and like coercing her into this. So, um, A few years before her death, Sandy tried to get help from the police. She worked at a mall her senior year of high school. And in November of 1975, she was assaulted by a man who had been following her for three months. Um, And the man was like taken down, I guess, by a security guard at the mall. 
Um, in April of 1967, the man followed her throughout the mall. And in July, the man threatened her for getting a warrant for the assault. So she had tried like several times to get some help from the police and got nothing. So um, according to the detectives, the gun made it clear it was suicide. Um but to the family, the gun made it clear that it was homicide. The detective didn't think that a killer would have Sandy's dad's gun or leave it at the scene. Um, and the family believes that the gun required two hands to shoot and the kickback would have thrown it through the window and out of the car if it was Sandy who was holding it with one hand. So Melissa, the host, gets Paul Uribe, a forensic pathologist, to kind of analyze the case. And he looks through the police report and he said that because both of Sandy's hands had gunpowder on them, she was either holding or very close to the gun. It's possible that she did shoot herself, but it's, it's uncommon that everything would work out the way it did. And the lack of fingerprints is actually not unusual um, on that gun. Um, and he said that the plans for her future, like, you know, wanting to be a cop and like calling her grandmother to maybe want to go to Maine um, could just be like a representation of kind of like an ambivalence. Like when people are contemplating suicide, they kind of sometimes they go like back and forth. Um, so it could be that she wanted to move to Maine, start over. It could be she wanted to end her life. So Bernie Nelson, the one who ended up getting the police report for Kim, um, said that he wanted to meet with her. Um, and he agreed with her that the police department was acting inappropriately and like most of them shouldn't be serving. Um, and another detective, Detective McDonald, went to Doug's house and questioned him for an hour and a half. Doug says that he did have a relationship with Sandy, but didn't know she was pregnant. He said he was interviewed and polygraphed by the Maryland police and didn't know she had died until three days after the 11th. So being interviewed by the state police and like the county police are like two separate things. So he was never interviewed by the county police, but um, he was by the state police or so he says. Um, but Kim thinks that they they used this meeting with Doug to just prove that they had like done something because that was like one of the main things was like, you never even talked to him. And they're like, okay, fine. We'll go talk to him. And look, he says nothing. So um, they're still convinced it's suicide. So Bernie Nelson um, kind of gets into the specifics of the gunshot and he, he shows Kim that it wasn't exactly going from right to left, but if you looked really closely, it more so went from front to back and it could have aligned with her bracing the gun against the steering wheel. And he said that the gunpowder um, was on the steering wheel and that's how it got on her hands and that supports her like bracing it on the steering wheel. So at this point, Kim, who has like for so long, like decades believed that it was Doug who shot her and the police have it all wrong. She's now starting to consider like the other possibility. Um, and so she had flown out. I'm not sure where to meet Bernie, but when she gets back home at this point, she has now changed her mind and she does think that it was suicide. So she goes back to the Beale family um, and meets with them. She explains everything she learned and what Bernie told her. And Joanne um, 
Sandy's mother ends up agreeing with Kim. Oh, so wow. she changes her mind. Um, her brothers still disagree. And um, I don't know. I don't know if they'll ever change their mind. But now, and this is where it stands today, the, nothing else. They don't know anything else. Like this mm-hmm. is all um, they have. And so the family is kind of split at this point between um you know, was it Doug or was it Sandy? And um, yeah, the the police corruption, there's a few parts of the podcast where they do go into kind of like other counties and other examples of like police brutality and harassing women and victims mm-hmm. and um, just kind of what they, how possible it is for him to have covered this up. Yeah. If, I mean, if, he has like lim or un, um, what am I, endless like resources. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting to, to see that they changed their mind. Like yeah, that is. Him who went decades, like she has so many, um, the host, Melissa said that she and Kim texted almost every day for a year, like talking yeah. about things. So it was not just this, thing they just changed their mind overnight yeah yeah yeah. and it was something she really truly wholeheartedly believed and not just because she didn't want to think of sandy Mm -hmm. in that way but because she really believed like the evidence Mm -hmm. showed her that um Mm -hmm. so yeah and i don't i don't know i can't decide what i think i wonder if like they were together and doug was in the car and like something like one thing led to another where she was like i'm gonna kill myself yeah yeah like if you don't pick me or if you you yeah whatever there was a little bit of conversation about like maybe he told her at some point that he was gonna leave his wife for her Mm -hmm. and then he he said no I'm not going to and she said okay well if you know if you don't then this is what I'm gonna do and he says I'm not going to and then she does it Mm -hmm. um so yeah and just I mean, the relationship is completely inappropriate in so many ways, but yeah, um, yeah, the fact that that she so badly wanted to be a cop, and so she allowed herself to get close to these people that she thought would be like her mentors, and they like totally took advantage of her. And sad, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a really interesting story. I um saw the podcast and never listened to it, but I'm glad that you told it because yeah. that is very interesting and sad. Yeah, if you could hear it over. This yeah, Rumi device. had a lot to say in this episode, so yeah, you guys, sorry. You're just gonna have to hear what she had to say and what Sam had to say, and you're just gonna have to deal with it. So, <laughs> but I'm gonna post a picture of her in our little whenever we post this, and be like, we had here's our cases, and here's Rumi. Yeah, special effects <laughs> provided by <laughs> yeah. this one. Yeah. Well, that was good. I enjoyed that. Um, I well, I didn't enjoy it. It was yeah. You I know, enjoyed hearing it, learning about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's everything. I we've said what we needed to say. Remy said what she needed to say. So that everyone is... got a word in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Bye, Sam. Bye, Ashton. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> Thanks for listening to In Search Of. Don't forget to review, subscribe, and follow our podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes. If you want more information on In Search Of, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. 